Uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you don't have a Bible, we want to give one to you today. If you don't have one, just raise your hand real quick, and we will make sure we get one into your hands. If you do have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 14 this morning. Genesis chapter 14. At the end of uh, J.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, and the movie of the same name, if you've seen it, there's a climactic scene that's called The Battle of the Five Armies. And it's really an amazing sequence that brings together all these different warring factions. There's dwarves and there's men. There's orcs and there's elves. And there's this epic conflict. It all comes together in that final scene. And all these different storylines converge there with the battle of five armies. Now, if you just jumped into the end of that book, if you were reading The Hobbit, um, but you skipped like the whole first section, just went to the last chapter, or if you were, maybe you walked in on your kids watching the movie and you'd never read the book or seen the first part, you might be kind of confused as to what's going on, who's fighting who, and why. You would have no idea because it's kind of complicated. It's a complicated story with a lot of different characters involved. There's a lot of different storylines to keep straight. Well, in Genesis 14, we don't have five armies. We actually have 12. There's 12 armies here. There's an initial battle where you have four kings fighting against five. But then after that, there's a second battle in which a coalition of three other armies pursues and conquers the victors of the first battle. And if you don't read carefully, if you don't read slowly, and in full confession, I had to get out pen and paper and like make lists and columns just to keep everybody straight. If you don't do that, you'll be really confused. And you'll have a hard time pronouncing all these names as well. So bear with me as I read through our text this morning. But when you finally get everything figured out here in Genesis 14, what emerges is really a gripping tale, a gripping tale of combat and courage in which the faithfulness of God and the faith of Abram are both put on display. Before we jump into our text this morning, I want to just remind ourselves of what has led up to all this. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in Genesis, if you remember back in chapter 12, there was a major turning point in, in, in the book of Genesis. God spoke, Genesis 12, into a cursed and broken world, a world marked by sin and death and suffering and rebellion, and God promises blessing. Just flip back. This is so powerful. We need to look at it. The Lord said to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this promise in Genesis chapter 12 is really the key to understanding the rest of Genesis. And more than that, it's the key to understanding the whole Old Testament and even the rest of Scripture. Buried within this promise, wrapped up within this promise, are the seeds of of what grows throughout the rest of the whole biblical storyline. But to jump back in here to Genesis, Abram receives this promise in faith. He believes and he obeys And he goes. And that launches us off into the rest of the narrative of Abram's life. We get to chapter 13. After a momentary lapse of faith, he had an embarrassing failure in Egypt. We eventually find Abram back in the land, but we see that he's forced to separate from his nephew Lot, who's been living with him, migrating with him, because both of them were were growing in wealth and they were competing for pasture land. They could not stay together anymore. 
And we see that in an act of humble generosity that's rooted in his faith in God's promise, Abram gives Lot first choice of the land. He says, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go north, I'll go south. The whole land is before you. Lift up your eyes and choose what you want, and I will go the other way. Abram trusts that whatever happens, God is going to fulfill his promise. So he doesn't have to grasp. He doesn't have to manipulate or manage the situation. So based on what looks best to the human eye, Lot chooses, um, sadly and fatally so, to go towards Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a choice that makes sense economically. That's the best grazing land. There's, there's commerce there. There's a good place to live. So it makes sense on the surface, but that choice will prove, as we all know, to be disastrous before too long. Following that parting of ways, God confirms his promise to Abram. He had promised him land and promised to make him a great nation, but he tells him, walk throughout all the land. Take a survey trip, Abram. Everything that you see, I am going to give you. This initial promise of land and offspring are expanded. And he says, it's not just offspring. He says, your offspring will be as the dust of the earth. The promise expanded and confirmed. So Abram settles at a place called Hebron, and he worships there. He builds an altar to worship the Lord. So that, that brings us up to chapter 14. Chapter 14, Abram and Lot are separated, but both living in the land. One is pursuing wealth in Sodom. The other is worshiping the Lord in Hebron. Then a new crisis arises. Crisis after crisis, right? This new crisis arises. Abram and Lot are swept up into an international conflict. There's an international conflict here, this battle of 12 armies in Genesis chapter 14. Read along with me. I'm going to read through just verses 1 through 3. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So there's a bunch of names, right? The stage is being set for battle, and there's two sides. There's these two coalitions made up of, of different kings of these different city-states, not kings of massive nations, but more so tribal chiefs of these different cities that are in league together. So why are they gathered here for battle? Why is it four against five here in the valley of Sidim? Well, we're kind of given the backstory in verses 4 through 9. It says, all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, verse 3. Verse 4, here we know why they're gathered for battle. Twelve years they had served Keter Laomer, the five kings from the south, the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were. They had served the king of Elam and his allies, who were to the north and the east, for twelve years. They had been under their rule and control. But in the thirteenth year, Moses tells us, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keter Laomer and the kings who were with him well, they come to settle the score. This is the backstory. We see in verse 4, first of all, a deliberate revolt. There's a deliberate revolt that really sets the stage for this chapter. The king of Elam, Keter Laomer, and his allies had been ruling over these southern cities for 12 years. And eventually, they got tired of paying tribute. They got tired of giving their lunch money to the bully who was demanding that they always pay up. So... Being tired of giving tribute to these distant overlords, they band together and they decide to stop paying their bill. They rebelled. They rebelled. 
Following this deliberate revolt, the ruling powers to the north and the east, they go on a a devastating rampage. They hear about this. Their check stops coming in the mail, and they say, okay, if that's how it's going to be, we'll come back and we'll remind you who is in charge. We see this devastating rampage in verses 5 through 12. In the 14th year, word has finally gotten up to them. They figured out what's going on. It says, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, well, they start heading south. They came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, this is getting closer now to this valley in the south, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who are dwelling in Hazazon. Tamar. The bully decides it's time to put his foot down and send a message. So they basically embark on this ruthless campaign to crush the rebellion and to assert their dominance, not just over these five kings, but over everybody else who gets in their way as well. This is literally literally a list of all the different people they've just steamrolled on their way to do business with the rebels in the south. They're rolling over everyone in their path. No one can stand in their way. And with each city and each tribe that are hard for us to pronounce, With each one that's mentioned here, they are drawing closer and closer, if you know your geography, to doing business with these kings in the south. Finally, as they draw near, the coalition of rebels comes out to face them, these invaders, these overlords, in the valley of Sidim, near where the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, is. But their fate would be no different than the people's before them. They are about to be another statistic. Look what happens in verses 8 through 12. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, these are the rebels. They went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. They're going to see if they can stop this steamroller that's coming their way. With Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Emraphel, all these guys. Verse 10. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. These are tar pits, like asphalt. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they're being beaten here, they're being defeated, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. This coalition of rebels, they come out and they take their stand in the valley, but they are crushed and they are defeated. By these overlords. Some fell by the sword, some fell into the tar pits in the valley, the rest fled, and all their families and possessions are taken as plunder. Now, at this point, at this point we, we start to ask the question okay, so the history of the earth is filled with these kinds of stories conflict, a thirst for rule and power and wealth and land. I mean, ancient times and modern times, it's, it's the same story. Why is this included in the life of Abram? Why is this story included in the book of Genesis? What does this have to do with him? Well, here's where it connects to Abram. Among the captives, among those who were taken as slaves, among that which was plundered was Lot. This is Abram's nephew and his family and all his things. Remember, they had moved close to Sodom back in chapter 13, verse 12, we saw that, and we see in 14, 12, that they had actually moved into Sodom. Lot had associated himself with these wicked nations for the sake of material gain, but that meant he would also share in their fate. 
They were captured, and so was he. Lot had laid up his treasures on earth, and the thieves had now broken in to steal, to use the words of Jesus. Lot and the others are taken. They're marched north and east as spoils of war to be slaves in a foreign land. I don't think this is what Lot had bargained on. I don't think this is what he anticipated. This is a horrific and tragic situation. But what this means is now Abram, the man of faith, the one who had been called and blessed by God, he now has a dog in the fight. He hadn't been mentioned in any of the battles before this. But following this devastating rampage, what happens next is a daring rescue in verses 13 through 16. Look what happens next. It's like an action movie, you know, next scene to next scene. Then one who had escaped, one of the survivors of the battle, he came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan is all the way in the northern region of Canaan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Following the battle, a messenger comes to Abram, who's called here for the first time the Hebrew. He's being recognized as an ethnic people group among these other peoples of the lands. And this survivor, you imagine him straggling in, perhaps wounded, perhaps exhausted, dragging himself in. He says, Abram, they've taken Lot. And he tells him everything that's happened about the battle, the decisive victory of the invaders, the capture of his family members. And as soon as Abram hears this staggering news, he responds with immediate action. Immediate action. It's interesting here, the word that's translated kinsman in verse 14 is often rendered in other places as brother. Though they are not literally descendants of the same father and mother, Abram has a strong familial bond with Lot. It's like, this is my brother. And he cares for him. Although Lot had withdrawn from Abram and self-servingly taken the best land, Abram feels this loyalty to him. And it's truly amazing that Abram isn't bitter. That he's not indifferent. Well, Lot, looks like you made your bed and now you get to lie in it. How did that work out for you? I mean, maybe that's what I would be tempted to say. But no, that's not how Abram responds. He instead shows loyalty and courage and and is willing to personally sacrifice for the good and the blessing of his estranged nephew. Abram and his trained servants. We see here that his household is growing. He is being blessed. 318, perhaps some of them. Uh, he had collected even in Egypt when he was there. He and his allies, some of these Amorites that he is in league with, and, and they had a bone to pick with these invaders too. If you look back um, earlier in the chapter, you see that one of the people groups that these invaders rolled over were some other Amorites. So Abram has a nephew who's been captured, and his two Amorite allies, well, they had some cousins who had been taken as well. So these guys now all have a dog in the fight. And they have an agreement to to uphold as well with Abram. They're in league with him. They're allies of him. So they saddle up and go with him. So it's Abram and a couple of these others. They all go in pursuit. Now remember that the Elamites, these invaders, and all their allies, these guys are undefeated. 14 years ago, they had come and conquered the whole land. And they just came through and put a huge beat down on everybody again. What makes Abram and his little group and these two other guys think that they would be victorious? What would make them think that they had any chance 
of not just defending their territory, but going on the offensive and rescuing all these possessions and these people. It's the promise, isn't it? It's the promise. God had promised to bless Abram. God had promised to make his name great. God had promised to bless those who bless him, but to curse those who opposed him. God had promised to make a great nation of him. And Abram was confident in this promise, so confident that he was willing to chase after the biggest, toughest kid on the block and pick a fight with him. He's confident. His confidence here, his, his immediate action is truly a demonstration of faith and courage. Now, how could he have responded? Rather than faith, he could have responded in unbelief. That stinks a lot that you've been taken, but I've got to hide Maybe I need to go find a different land that's not being dominated by these warlords because otherwise, how can God bless me? He could have responded in fear. I can't go fight against them. We'll suffer the same fate as this huge list of all these other people who have already been conquered. I don't want to be the next statistic. But rather than unbelief and fear, he responds with faith and with courage. Abram and his allies pursue the invaders all the way to Dan, all the way to the north, and they split up at night. You can see here the strategy involved, and they defeat them, and they rescue not only Lot, but all the persons and property that had been plundered. They took everything from these invaders and ran them out of town. Now, how in the world could this small group be victorious over this large coalition of undefeated warriors? Well, it's the same way that later a man named Gideon and his 300 would be victorious at night over a massive massive Midianite army, the same way that later a young shepherd boy would be victorious over a massive Philistine giant, the same way the crucified Messiah would one day defeat death and rise from the grave. It is nothing less than the power of God. Abram didn't win this battle. God did. God gave it to him. The only explanation is the presence of the divine blessing and power of God on this man, this man whom he had chosen And to whom he had made promises. And God always keeps his word. Abram was counting on it. And he was not disappointed. Abram's faith has been tested here and found true. Following the daring rescue, Abram uh, triumphantly returns. But his faith is about to be tested again in a totally different way. In a totally different way. We see their triumphant return in verses 17 through 14. And here's something really interesting happens. Look at what happens. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer, And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. And the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. As Abram and company are making their way south to return home, 
They're greeted here by two kings, and they're given a hero's welcome. The king of Sodom comes out to meet them, and the king of Salem, which would later, later be known as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Uh, Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, comes out. And there's a stark contrast between these two kings. One, the king of Sodom, is a king who is famous, infamous rather, for being the king of this city that is known for its depravity, known for its wickedness, known for its immorality. The other, Melchizedek, his name literally means king of righteousness. One rules over a city that is destined for destruction, as we'll see in a couple chapters later. We all know Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed. But the other rules over Salem, which is really the same word that is often uh, translated shalom, peace. The, the king of peace and the king of the city of destruction. This stark contrast, contrast in character, contrast in destiny, two very different kings. <clears throat> Not only are they different in character, but their agenda is very different as well. And we see this in what they say to Abram. One comes as a representative of God, bringing spiritual blessing. The other comes bringing material wealth and an offer of worldly entanglement. The king of Sodom is interested in getting his wealth back. But the king of Salem, Melchizedek, he has a different agenda. Look at what he does. Melchizedek, the text tells us, is not only a king, he's also a priest of the Most High God. And this is unique. We're actually going to take, <coughs> we're actually going to take next week and just talk about Melchizedek all by himself because the New Testament has a lot to say about this man and how he is sort of a shadow, an example of this unique blending of royalty and priesthood that one day Jesus will be the ultimate fulfillment of. We're going to talk about all that next week. It's too much to get into today. But just here in the context of Genesis by itself, he is a king and he is a priest, priest of God most high, El Elyon, the God who is over all the gods of Canaan. So he's unique here. And though he is likely thankful to be rid of the invaders, as priest of God Most High, Melchizedek has eyes to see. And when he sees Abram, he recognizes the blessing of God on Abram's life. And his main interest, therefore, seems to be worship, doesn't it? It's worship. He brings out a royal feast, the bread and wine, to welcome Abram the victory. And he comes not to get anything from Abram, he comes to give. Here's the feast, and let me bless you. Notice what he says in 19 through 20. Blessed be Abram. He blesses Abram first. By God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And secondly, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. See, Melchizedek recognizes that God is the creator and owner of all things, possessor of heaven and earth. And that word possessor has the idea of creation and making kind of bound up within it. He owns it all because he made it all. Creator and owner of all things. King of Sodom, this stuff isn't really yours. Abram, this stuff isn't really yours. This land doesn't belong to anyone ultimately except for God most high. Melchizedek knows that. He knows that and he worships God, blesses him as that. Because he knows that God is the owner of all things, <coughs> he also recognizes God as the source of Abram's victory. It is God most high, verse 20, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he blesses Abram, but ultimately he worships God. He gives God the credit for Abram's victory. And though Abram, though Abram had won the victory, he comes to bless him. And it's interesting how, how Abram responds to this. Abram agrees. God is the one who has given me the victory. 
And because of that, he gives to this royal priest a tenth of all the spoils, saying, God is to be worshipped. All this stuff I have, all this new wealth, it's all from God. And so he gives a tenth of it to God, setting an example that would later be adopted and put into law for the nation Israel. The tithe is modeled off of Abram's gift here. He's not necessarily giving it to Melchizedek, but to God, the one whom Melchizedek as a priest represents. So he comes to bless Abram to worship God. But then the king of Sodom speaks, and he has a very different agenda. There's no worship here. There's no gratitude even. There's no blessing, just bartering. He does not recognize God as owner of all. He's concerned with getting some of his stuff back. He does not recognize God as the source of victory. He only sees a victorious Abram, and he sees him as someone to be negotiated with. Although Abram owed the king of Sodom nothing, and technically by right, Abram could have kept everything. He didn't have to give anything back to anybody. He had won it fair and square in victory, and it all belonged to him uh, in a legal sense. But the king of Sodom kind of rudely and abruptly speaks in verse 21. In Hebrew, it's even more abrupt. Uh, he He says to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In Hebrew, it's literally, give me persons, take the wealth. And I think there's more going on here even than him just wanting to get his stuff back. Not only did he want to recoup some of his losses, but I also think that this king of Sodom, he wanted a man like Abram to be around long term. Wow, this guy can win battles. This guy has some sort of divine blessing on him. Hey, buddy, we should hang out more. I think that's kind of what the king of Sodom is saying to Abram. He knew that it was only because of Lot that Abram had come to the rescue. And I think it's likely that he's looking to make a new ally here, saying, hey, keep some of this stuff for yourself. He's looking to kind of forge some sort of connection with Abram. And this is really a test for Abram. God had promised Abram blessing. And this deal with the king of Sodom would mean material gain. God, is this how you're trying to bless me? Beware of the theology of open doors. Just because you can doesn't always mean you should. Too often we say, this door is open and I can, therefore this is what God wants me to do. God, you want to give me all this wealth from the king of Sodom. That would fulfill your promise of blessing. But Abram, uh, thankfully, he evaluated it differently. When he was faced with this test, he was faced with the, the temptation, material gain. But what came with it, what came with his material gain would be entanglement with the wicked city of Sodom. So here's the test. Would Abram, like our ancient parents in the garden, reach for something, for power, for wealth, for quote-unquote blessing? But would he do it God's way, or would he be be patient and wait, or would he reach for it himself and take it? Notice how Abram responds in verses 22 through 24. (laughs) Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted up my hand. This is swearing an oath in a formal sense. It says, I have sworn that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Say, I don't want to become rich because of you. Why? Here's, Here's Abram's reasoning. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. There's two things in here. He says, I don't want you to get any glory. I don't want you, king of Sodom, to get any glory for the blessing that God is bringing in my life. But secondly, I also think he's saying, I'm not going to give you any angle to have any sort of control or influence over me. I don't need you, and I'm not going to become foolishly enmeshed. I don't need that. I don't need that. 
We see here really Abram's heart for worship. He wants God to get all the credit, but we also see Abram's wisdom. He doesn't want to give this man any sort of control or influence. He doesn't want this to tarnish the blessing that God was bestowing. Perhaps Abram remembered the bitter aftertaste of the wealth he'd acquired in Egypt. Remember, he went to Egypt, and he lied and said his wife was really his sister. Pharaoh took Sarah into his household and gave Abram all this stuff, camels, donkeys, male and female servants, all these things, sheep, and he became much more rich, but he lost his wife and he lost his honor. And that wealth brought complications. He and Lot had to split up. And later, we'll read of an Egyptian servant whom he had a child with that brings all these complications. I think Abram here knew that wealth... That, more money, more problems. That can just bring issues into his life that he doesn't want. So we see his desire to worship God, and we also see some wisdom here. And he, so he turns down the offer of the king of Sodom. He says, you know what? Let my allies, they came here and risked their necks. Let them take their share, and, and I, I'll keep the things that my servants had to eat along the way. I'm not going to pay you back for that, but I'm not taking anything more from you. I'm not taking anything more. So that's kind of how the story ends there, with Abram refusing this offer from the king of Sodom. Again, demonstrating his faith. God is the one who will bless me. I don't need you to bless me. And God is the one who gets the credit for the powerful work he has done here. You don't get any credit for that. And I don't get any credit for that. It's all about his glory. So what's the significance of the story in whole? Why does this matter? To this point, I've been kind of just giving you kind of a history lecture, in a sense, talking about what happened. So why does that matter? What are the implications of this? What's the significance of this story? Well, first, I think it's, we need to understand how this fits into the story of Genesis and to the theology of Genesis. Because here in Genesis 14, God is once again seen to be God of power and the God of promise. That promise in Genesis chapter 12, it's never mentioned here in 14. But, but the fingerprints of that promise are all over these events. God's promise to bless him to bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him, and to make his name great. That is all throughout this story. We see here that God is powerful, he is able to fulfill his promise, and he is faithful. He always does. He always does. Abram receives the blessing of victory. His enemies experience God's cursing. Those who bless Abram, like Melchizedek, are blessed. He receives this tithe. And those who curse him, his enemies, are crushed and defeated. And we see here, too, that Abram's name, God has said, I'll make your name great. He's getting quite the reputation around Canaan, isn't he? Who among all the clans of Canaan were able to go up against the Elamites? Abram. It's Abram. We see here God's promise being initially fulfilled. And this is only the beginning of what God will do to bring this promise to fulfillment. So we see here God's character and his faithfulness displayed. It's interesting. Even Sodom and Gomorrah are blessed. They get their people, their families, their wives, and their children back. They're blessed not for their own sake. No, they're about to be judged here just a few moments later. They're blessed for Abram's sake. God's promise was that through Abram and his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see sort of an initial fulfillment of that here that would one day go to fulfillment as Abram's descendant, Jesus Christ, would one day hang on a cross to rescue not just one man and his family, but all who would place their faith and trust in Jesus. That blessing will come to the nations one day through Abram. And we see it being hinted at here and already experiencing an initial level of fulfillment. We see here that God is faithful to his promise. He's faithful to his promise. But this fits into not just 
not just the story of Genesis, but the rest of the Old Testament. Remember that Moses is writing this historical account of Abram for a specific group of people, for that generation of Israel that had left Egypt, and they're now in the wilderness, and they're on their way to the promised land. Now, if you had just left slavery, and you're going to a land that this God had promised to one of your ancestors, and you're going to have to drive out all these inhabitants, isn't this the kind of story you want to hear? That, hey, God always keeps his promises, and he gives victory to the underdogs and gives them the land? Isn't that a story that you need? You've been making bricks all your life, and now you're about to be a soldier and go into the land of Canaan to fight against Jericho and Ai and all the ites that live around there, right? This is the kind of story that they needed. And so Moses writes this under the inspiration of God saying, listen, this is who our God is. This is how faithful he's been in the past. He always keeps his promises. Don't be afraid when you go into the land. God's done it before, and he can do it again. Those ancient readers of this book needed to hear this story as they were going to go up against formidable foes as they sought to take the land. But there's a challenge here for them as well. Would they act in faith like Abram? Would they act immediately with courage? They also needed to see this wise example of refusing to become entangled with the wicked nations of the region. There would be tribes and clans and nations that would come to them and want to strike a deal. Let your daughters marry our daughters. They would want to become enmeshed. But their separation from such people would be crucial to their purity and survival as a nation. So we can see here that this story would have been so important for that generation that was going to enter into the promised land. Read in the context of preparing for conquest, this story is an encouraging model of separation from pagan wickedness and full dependence on the power of the Lord and courage to go into battle. But I want to connect it also, not just to Genesis, not just to the Old Testament. I want to connect it for all of us who live in this day and age, in the church, in the New Testament era, after the cross. We're no longer living in Israel. We're no longer under the law. But this story is important for you. It's important for me as well. I think it gives us, first of all, encouragement. I want to give you this morning encouragement as believers to hear this, that Christ is the ultimate victor who rescues all to look to him by faith. Abram goes here, and he rescues Lot because God was with him, and God keeps his promises. There is another rescuer, a much greater rescuer. And you and I, though there's much we can learn from Abram, in some senses we identify with Lot, don't we? We live in a wicked world, and we have often foolishly become entangled because of our own flesh and the temptations that are out there. Who is the one who can rescue? Who is the one who can save? It is Jesus Christ. Listen to what Colossians 1.13 says. It says that, speaking of God, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ is the one who rescues us from our slavery to sin, our slavery to Satan, our slavery to death. He redeems us, forgives our sins, and he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God is a deliverer. He was a deliverer back in Genesis and in Exodus and in Isaiah and in the Gospels and in Acts and today. God is a deliverer. The God that we are called to trust today is a deliverer, a savior. And that means that we can trust him. It means that we can share in this victory. It means that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be overwhelmed. Even when the battle looks grim, even when the odds are stacked against us, 
The victory is for all who believe. Our victory is wrapped up in his victory. That's why the Apostle John writes this in 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The good news is this morning that you don't have to be the ultimate overcomer because Jesus already is. You simply trust him and receive his saving power, his grace, his mercy. He is the victor. Though we are engaged in spiritual warfare, we have the blessing of victory in Christ. And not even death can change the outcome. Not even death can change the outcome. We, we read 1 Corinthians 15 at Easter. We love these words. Paul says, when the perishable, our physical bodies, put on the imperishable, resurrected bodies, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But Paul says, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have the opportunity this morning to share in the ultimate victory that God has wrought through Christ. If you will believe, you'll place your faith in Jesus. And if you don't know him this morning, you have no hope of overcoming your sin on your own. You have no hope of overcoming death on your own. You have no hope of achieving enough righteousness to please God. You have less hope than all those people who stood in the path of the Elamites as they swept through the Transjordan region. But there is a savior. There is a victor. Look to him in faith today. I want to encourage you with that this morning, but I also want to exhort you. I want to exhort you this morning because there's implications to this. We should be encouraged, but we are also called to respond. First of all, we must have radical trust in God's promise. We see that in Abram's life. And that's something that when we see who God is and we understand this promise and we see his faithfulness, we must respond with radical trust in the promise of God. You know, Abram could have responded to this whole situation in fear, right? The opposite of faith. Or he could have responded in apathy. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Lot figured out. I'm over here with my guys at Hebron. That's your problem. He could have responded in fear or apathy, but he responded in neither. He responded in faith, radical trust in the promise of God, which resulted in courage, courage to step into the battle. Here's the point for us today. Faith compels us, you and me, to engage in what God is calling us to do, not to be afraid and not to be apathetic. Faith compels us to engage in what God is calling us to do. Not to be afraid. Not to be apathetic. What is it that God is calling us to engage in? Our mission is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. We talk about that all the time here. That's not just our like cutesy little slogan as a church. We believe that this is the mission that God lays out for us in Scripture. It's not one that we invented or came up with. It's one that's been received. We seek to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. But fear and apathy will undermine that mission. If you're too afraid to speak the name of Christ, if you're too afraid to take the risks that come with relationships, if you're too afraid to receive the ridicule and the rejection that is out there, you will not be faithful to this mission. Or if you're apathetic, 
If you just don't really care that much, you'll never carry out this kind of a comprehensive, life-dominating mission. Apathy is the enemy of our mission. Fear will cripple us as we seek to fulfill this mission. But faith energizes our mission, doesn't it? When you believe who God is and you trust in his promises, we have courage and we step out in obedience as a friend, as a church member, as a parent, as a neighbor, as an employee. We say, these are my marching orders and I know God's promises. He said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So I can have this conversation. I can invite that unsaved neighbor into my home for dinner. I can be honest about my sin with that person in my small group because I believe in the promise of God. I believe in the promise of God. Too often, too often we respond wrongly when that moment of testing comes. Too often we wait when we should act. When Abram heard what had happened, he immediately saddled up his troops and left. He acted. Too often we wait when we should act because of fear. And other, there's other times where we act when we should wait, right? The king of Sodom comes and says, here it all is. You can have all this stuff. And Abram says, no, no thank you. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to wait on his timing. I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to reach for something and do it my way. I'm going to let God bless me in his way and in his time. Too often we wait when we should act or we act when we should wait. How do we know when to do what? It's going to be faith in the promises of God, submission to the will of God, bringing our life into conformity with the will that's revealed in Scripture. That's how we know. We don't have time to get into how that plays out practically with wisdom. But we need to ask ourselves that question. Am I prone to wait when I should act? Or am I maybe more prone to, uh, to act when I should wait? Faith will lead us to respond in obedience, in courage. It will energize our mission, and it will help us to say that everything that should happen here should ultimately be for the glory of God, right? No thank you, King of Sodom, because I want God to get all the credit. How do you know if you should act? Ask yourself the question, is this going to be the thing that brings most glory to God? How do you know if you should wait? Is this going to be the thing that brings most glory to God? That's going to be a good rudder for us to help us navigate these kinds of situations. But not only do we need a radical trust in the promises of God, um, as we kind of already getting into this, we secondly need a relentless commitment to God's glory. You know, Abram could have taken the offer of material reward. He could have kept what was technically his, but he refused to become entangled. He refused to let the king of Sodom get any of the credit for what God was doing in his life. He wanted all the glory to go to God. Such a relentless commitment to the glory of God is essential for us. It's essential for us. It aligns us with God's purposes, and it protects us from making foolish decisions. God's glory must be the due north on the compass of our lives. It's more important than our comfort. God's glory is more important than even our immediate success in trying to do things for him. God's glory is more important than our physical health. It's more important than our financial stability. It's more important than our social status. It's more important than our careers. We need a relentless commitment to the glory of God. When that is due north on our compass, it's going to help us navigate all these different tests and challenges. So be encouraged today. Our God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Christ is the ultimate deliverer who rescues all who look to him by faith. And know this, that true blessing will come. It won't come through the world. It will ultimately come from God in his way and in his timing, so wait on him. And I also want to exhort us today, let's trust in the promises of God. Let's depend on his power, 
not try to make everything work ourselves. Be confident in his victory. That will give us the courage we need to go forth and engage in the mission that he's given us. May God give us the kind of faith that Abraham demonstrated here so that he will get all the glory for whatever victories and successes he blesses us with in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your promise that you are a God who determines to bless. You blessed Abram. You made him a great nation. And through his lineage, you brought about a Messiah who died and rose again so that sinners from every nation could be saved. All who look to him in faith would receive the promised blessing of reconciliation with God, the presence of your Holy Spirit, and eternal life. We thank you for that gift and that blessing. It's only because you're faithful that we can be saved. And we thank you, Lord, for this encouraging story. Lord, we feel so often in our culture and society that we are becoming an increasing minority when it comes to believing in the authority of your word and the truth of the gospel. Lord, give us courage today to remember that it doesn't matter how many people oppose. You are able, you are powerful, you are faithful. Lord, give us courage to step out in faith and obedience to do the things you call us to do. And we pray that as we do this, that our hearts would be singularly committed to your glory. Lord, we ask that you would bring your name great glory through us and in us. Amen.